It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on PressBox Access. Looking back at my career, one of my regrets is that I never covered boxing. Those who did say there was nothing like being ringside at a championship fight. Tom Lavero is one of those writers who has spent a lot of time in the world of boxing, and he's one of the best. He has some great stories about fighters, as you'll hear on this episode. But he's not a one-punch writer. You'll enjoy some of the other sports tales, too, from his career full of cigar smoke and keen insight. Hey, Tom, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Welcome to Press Box Access. Todd, I can't tell you how happy I am to be on. I've been waiting to get on this podcast for a long time now. Well, it's a it's a crowded bar. It's there's a lot of folks in this bar, you know. But we got a seat for you. <laughs> well, I've been waiting to get served. Uh, we got plenty to serve up. So here we go. <laughs> hey, Tom, we go back to uh, 2000. I think we met in Australia of all places. Yeah. At the uh, Sydney Olympics, uh, you were there for the Washington Times, and I was there for the Columbus Dispatch, and. Uh, and uh, that was quite a quite an experience, right? Yeah, you know what? One of the things I remember about Sydney, uh, just like a sports writer's uh, kind of of thing, is the exchange rate was unbelievable. You remember oh, yeah. that? Right? Oh yeah. It was like play money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember there were like some people who had like a certain amount in their expense account and were doing all they can to spend it out. Because they, oh, yeah. they they couldn't do it, so that, that that made it a lot more fun. Yeah, I think about that one. I wonder why the newspaper business crashed. You know, <laughs> sports writers in Australia. You know, I just remember the whole like three weeks or so, four weeks we were there. I just could never figure out what the hell time it was. You know, it's like the time difference was incredible. Sometimes it was even a different day. I remember asking one guy, uh, "Hey, the Australian guy, what time is it?" And he goes, "Beer o'clock." Yeah. <laughs> well, you but, know. You know, I, I think about now, if we were, if this would happen now and with the 24 hour news cycle. Oh, yeah. That would, that wouldn't be as much fun, I don't think. Well, the only time I knew it was exactly was when it was like 3 a.m. in the media center yeah. and you're like a table away from me and you have yeah, a few beers in front of your computer. <laughs> we all did. Yeah. And we we're all just sitting there getting ready to carve out some. Some some columns and stories, yeah. and that's the middle of the night, and what a memory as a writer. You know, I think uh, the one thing about Sydney that I don't know about you, but I, I just remember the Kathy Freeman race. Do you do you recall that, uh, the Australian woman who won the 400 meters? Listen, I've covered uh, three Olympics, two Winter Olympics in Nagano in 98 and Salt Lake City in 2002, and the Sydney Olympics in 2000. My top three moments covering the Olympics all involved women, and Kathy Freeman is one of them. 
being right. in the stadium, winning that 400 meters was just really special. Yeah, the backstory was she was an Aboriginal, yes. um, grew up in Australia, and you had like 110,000 people there rooting for this woman. I know. Very small in stature. Yeah. And I just remember sitting literally in the front row at the track, right by the finish line. Incredible seat. Yeah, when she came around, When she came around that final turn, it was the loudest crowd I've ever heard. How do you remember that as a reporter that night? It was, it was, the, might, may have been the loudest crowd I ever heard too. It was a special moment. Uh, so yeah, that's one of my fondest memories of Sydney. Well, those are the kind of moments, the special moments that you've been part of for three decades now as a columnist at the Washington Times, before that, the Washington Examiner, and and then a previous stint at the Times when you first got into sports writing. Your childhood dream was to be a sports writer. You grew up in Brooklyn, four blocks from Ebbets Field, right? Yeah. yeah I grew up on Washington Avenue. Uh, I used to read the, the Daily News and the Daily Mirror at the time, sports oh, wow. section, when I was a little kid. And I grew up wanting to be Dick Young. So you went to the University of Miami for a brief time, right? Yeah, and uh, I left when uh, I burnt down half of my fraternity house. <laughs> How? With a cigar. <laughs> of course you did. And here's the bad part. I was president of the chapter. Well, <laughs> Mr. Blutarski. Not setting a good example. No, I don't think so. It was a Saturday afternoon, and uh, football was on. I'm sitting in my room watching it, and I was thirsty, so I went across the street to the convenience store, which was a U-Totem. That's what they had back then, mm -hmm. U-Totem, to get a couple of six-packs. And I left my lit cigar in an ashtray on a coffee table that must have been made out of gasoline because it rolled out of my the cigar rolled out of the ashtray onto the table. And when I walk down the hall to come back to the room, my roommate is running out of the room with flames shooting after him saying, you set the room on fire. <laughs> you have to be the, the only sports writer we've had on this show whose career really kind of began with a cigar burning down a house. For 15 years, you covered news and actually worked as an editor also. How did that experience, especially at the Baltimore Sun, of covering news, you're covering crime, courts, all kinds of things. How did that inform your career as a sports writer when you made the switch in 1992? Well, being an editor, I was an editor for six years and uh, before I went back to reporting there. And being an editor made me a much better writer when I went back to being a writer. It, it just, I mean, you know, I, I thought editors were pretty much useless uh, when I was a reporter before, and I still do. Actually, <laughs> but, it's, but, uh, it's different from a writer's perspective, yeah. but uh, it opened my eyes to, uh, you know, how I should be as a reporter. And when I went back mm -hmm. to it, I wanted to be the kind of reporter, both in my writing and how I did my job, where the editor would give them an assignment and not have to worry about it. Until right. it was in. I mean, I was not, I didn't want to be one of the headaches because I managed a lot of headaches as an editor. And mm -hmm. uh, it helped me then throughout my career. And then switching to sports, uh, the, you know, I know this sounds, and this frustrates a lot of sports writers. I don't mean it to be elitist, but it's just a lot easier to write a sports story than it is a news story. In what ways? Well, it, uh, gathering the information 
uh, information is much easily, more easily accessible in sports than it is in news. You have to dig it out a lot more mm-hmm. on the news side than you, you did on the sports side. And yeah, they're not handing you sheets of uh, quotes right. and statistics. And, right. The, the, yeah. the, the building blocks of a story are a lot easier to put together, I found. Uh, as, as, and the requirements in those building blocks are just simpler. Uh, so uh, I, I found myself pretty prolific as a sports writer being able to put out a lot of copy because it, it, you know, it just seemed a lot easier to me than writing the news stories. Well, I think that showed many years later um, in 2014, a great example of your news instincts and your skills as a news reporter showed as a sports columnist when you, uh, you had a, a column about the FBI files showing that the FBI thought Sonny Liston, Cassius Clay, later Muhammad Ali, that the Liston-Clay fights were fixed. The first fight in particular. I mean, that, that, was, that was something. I learned how to use the Freedom of Information Act over my years as, as a reporter. And uh, I had filed the Freedom of Information Act uh, related to a mob, a mob mobster named Ash, Re, Ash Resnick. Ash. <laughs> Let me guess. His his specialty was arson. <laughs> that may be. I'm not sure. Or maybe it was your cigar. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, he had some connections to boxing, so I filed it, and he had been passed on. And once a, somebody is passed on, their freedom, their their FBI file is available for pretty much anybody to look at. Right. Uh, right. So I, I filed a FOI request to get that. And in that were the FBI documents that said that uh, they had an informant who told them that a reliable informant, they felt so credible, it went up to all the way up to Hoover in terms of reading these documents that they thought that the uh, first playlist and fight was indeed fixed. The one in Miami yes. were, yeah. I mean, again, later Muhammad always. Ali upset Sonny Liston to win the uh, heavyweight championship. And and Ash Resnick was a close associate of Liston, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. Sonny was, everyone knew that Sonny was mo- you know, mobbed up at that point. Uh, and everyone always assumes that the second uh, Clay Liston fight, because of the way it happened with the phantom punch in the first round, was fixed, but not many people ever considered that the first fight may have been fixed. And uh, I mean, let's face it: when you look at the fight, Clay clearly outclassed Liston in that. But but still, right. Liston refused to get off his stool. You know, for well, I think it was the seventh round. Uh, after the seventh round, this is the kind of background and news savvy that you brought to sports, and you brought it to that award-winning story that you did about the FBI files. Uh, before I leave that, do you believe the first Sonny Liston Cassius Clay fight was fixed? I don't want to believe it. You know, later uh, when I was working for a weekly newspaper up in Strasburg, a different news weekly newspaper than the first one I talked about, it was in the in the uh, in '78 when Ali was fighting the rematch with Spinks. Mm-hmm. His training camp was at Deer Lake, Pennsylvania, an hour away from me, and. I went up to Deer Lake one time as a reporter for this weekly newspaper that no one ever heard of. And I met Gene Kilroy, who was Ali's kind of like camp advisor and one of his close advisors. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, after Ollie worked out, he would always go into his uh, dressing room and there'd be a bunch of reporters there, you know, Dave Anderson, uh, Pat Putnam. I mean, you know, the heavyweights of the business. So this guy, Gene Kilroy, let me into the room, the dressing room as, as a reporter. So I'm there with all these heavyweights, uh, and, you know, interviewing Ollie. Uh, then I started going up on a regular basis. And everyone got to know me there. Ali, in particular, got to know me. Uh, hmm. And uh, actually, one time it was just him and I, and he gave me a tour of his camp, including wow. the cabin where he slept with this big, giant, handmade bed that was there. So I was I had a real inf- affinity for Ali. So I'm, I mean, I, I still hope it wasn't fixed. Do you have a favorite story from those days you were hanging around as a young reporter at Deer Lake? Well, that would be it. That would be the time that it was just, oh, actually, uh, in 1980, when Ali came back in that unfortunate fight uh, with Larry Holmes, uh, he was working out again that summer at Deer Lake. And my parents, who lived in Florida, were up visiting from, uh, from there at the time. So I took them uh, to Deer Lake. Uh, my mom and dad were both boxing fans. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was growing up, my mom did not was not an Ali fan, hmm. uh, like most of her generation were not. You know, they she didn't like the big mouth. She didn't like the dancing in the ring the most. She didn't like that part. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so you know, after after Ali's workout, and the workouts open to everybody. It's re, it was remarkable back then that you know you could just wander in the camp and, and watch this guy train. And he would talk to the crowds and stuff. And so after his workout, sometimes he would come out and meet with people. And sometimes he wouldn't. So uh, my parents and I were all waiting outside his dressing room with a crowd of people. And nobody knows if he's coming out or not. And time is going on and on. So my mom uh, reaches into her pocketbook, pulls out this article that I had written about Ali. (laughs) <laughs> from the previous couple of years. I had no idea that she had it. But, you know, like she like <laughs> she, car- moms, she carried it around in her purse. Yeah, I love a it. A lot of moms, <laughs> she had like a scrapbook of everything I, I had written at, at that point. Right. So she starts yelling, you who, Mr. Ali? You who, Mr. Ali? <laughs> and he Mr. comes Ali. out. And uh, she says, my son wrote this story here about you. And he recognized me uh, right away. So he's looking at the story and he says, uh, did you write this? He says, you're not as dumb as you look, are you? <laughs> <laughs> so, and then That's he wound classic. up taking pictures with my parents and, you know, and stuff. So he, I mean, I, I loved the guy after that. To know him is, was to love him. So I sure hope right. it wasn't fixed. I'm going to operate on the premise that the FBI was wrong. Right. Well, your reporting was in-depth, award-winning, but let's hope that the FBI was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk more boxing because you've covered so many major fights. But I wanted to, to talk briefly about the early days of your move to sports in 1992 when you left the Baltimore Sun and you went to the Washington Times. Um, baseball has played a big role in, in your career, and, and it continued to do so as you went on to be a columnist. Uh, but you were a baseball beat reporter for a few seasons covering the Baltimore Orioles. And I've, we've talked about this with other reporters. 
uh, who were there that night. But on September 6, 1995, you were at Camden Yards covering the game when Cal Ripken Jr. broke the, the Lou Gehrig streak for consecutive games. Um, what was that night like as a reporter, and, and what does it mean to you looking back on it now? It's the greatest sports event, uh, greatest sports night I've ever been part of. Really? Oh, yeah. And, and what made it so special was the spontaneity of his 22-minute run around the stadium in the middle of the game. You know, they stopped the game after it became an official game, after, you know, the middle of the fifth inning. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had a big ceremony, like for 10 games leading up to that record-breaking game. Right. After the, fifth, the, the middle of the fifth inning, they would drop a number from the, the warehouse out in right field. Uh, and play this music, and Cal would get an ovation and stuff. But this time, this was a record-breaking game. And so, uh, you know, he, he came out of the dugout, waved to people. They were playing the California Angels. The Angels came out of the dugout. Everyone's giving him a standing ovation. And he goes, you know, he's not comfortable with this. He goes back in the dugout, and his teammates, particularly Rafael Palmero and Bobby Bonilla, push him back out on the field. You know, like they're not going to stop. So you got to get back out there. Mm -hmm. So he does. And then he takes off from the dugout and runs around slow trot around the entire stadium, reaching out to people in the stands, slapping five, shaking hands like for 22 minutes in the middle of the game. That was that was not staged. I mean, that was spontaneous. Mm. You don't get many moments like that uh, when it, when you're covering an event where everything was staged. You know, everyone knew what was going to happen that night. Right. You know, no one knew that was going to happen. Uh, so uh, that that's, I think, what made it particularly memorable for me. So remember, this is right. This is after the baseball strike. Right, a year later. You know, I, I know McGuire and Sosa get a lot of credit, misguided credit for 98 saving the game. But it was Cal Ripken who that year, and he felt an obligation to do this, I'd say for about six weeks, seven weeks before he broke the record, after every home game, he came out of the out of the clubhouse after the game. People had lined up throughout the stadium after the game, and he came out and he signed every autograph. Mm -hmm. He'd be there for 90 minutes sometime after a game. Signing autographs. So he understood the importance of being an yes. ambassador in that moment. Yes. Yes, he did. And, and the other thing about, about him that made it so special was, I mean, I knew how, how he didn't set this up. He didn't set. He, wasn't, he would, didn't treat himself like he needed to break this record. I mean, I watched this guy wrestle teammates in, in, the, in, the, in the clubhouse where he could have easily, I mean, wrestle teammates, not, you know, I mean, serious wrestling matches. And Cal was really strong, and nobody liked, liked it when he grabbed them and he would wrestle them, but he would do it all the time. Hmm. Could have easily gotten hurt doing that. I don't know if you've ever been in a Metrodome, but they have, you know, the clubhouse to the field, there's these long, like, mountain of steps at mm -hmm. different levels. Right. Must be 12 different levels. And he would race teammates. They have races up to the top 
of, of those steps. Could have easily twisted an ankle, <laughs> done anything to him. Uh, so uh, he did not live his life based on, I'm going to break this record. I know it's a cliche and people have you know, grown tired of hearing it over the years, but he really did live it in the sense that he felt an obligation to be out there for his team for every game. Right. How did having access and being around him on a daily basis in those years, how did that give you a better understanding of what this was all about? Well, you know, he, he was not the easiest guy to deal with. He wasn't mean, but uh, when you would talk to him for a story, he would ask you, well, what's your angle? What's the point? Why are you doing this kind of thing? And he, was, he wasn't real open, uh, you know, so he, he at, by that time, he had been a pretty public figure and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was wary of it. So, uh, and plus, he, he's, I don't think he was that comfortable then around people. What's interesting was uh, in 92, when Camden Yards opened, Rick Sutcliffe, uh, was a free agent who had signed with the Orioles. And this was near the end of Sut's career. And Rich Sutcliffe was a tremendous clubhouse leader. It's rare for a pitcher to be a leader because they don't play the game every day. Mm-hmm. But Sutcliffe was. He was a tremendous personality and figure. And he was a leader of that Orioles team. He'd only been there for two years. And Cal would, I think, look at him you know, as a, an admirer, but also envious, wishing that he could be like that too. I think he wished that he could be more like that. And he wound up becoming more like that near the end of his career. But uh, he was just a reserve person, so he never really got a lot. But uh, I'll tell you one time, I think it was coming back from the All-Star break. They were going up to Boston to play a series. And uh, I was on a plane, and Cal was on the same plane with me, flying up to Boston. Mm-hmm. And this was when I first started on the beat. I'd only been on the beat for a year, maybe. And so, uh, you know, I get my bag at, at baggage claim, and he happens to be there, too, because we're on the same flight. And he says to me, he says, you want to ride to the hotel, to your hotel? So he offers, you know, I, I ride to the, my hotel with him. I mean, that was his initial move, hmm. you know, to, to offer that to me. So, you know, that, that's kind of who he was. Right. He knew how it played, right? He, yeah. knew, he knew what the machine was like. Yeah. And now, I mean, uh, he's, you know, I, I don't, I haven't seen him much in retirement uh, of late, uh, but uh, he's much more open and accessible now than he used to be. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, that night in 1995 was certainly special to you and special to any baseball fan when you think about it. Those are the type of moments that live forever and certainly did help save baseball after that ugly strike. And it was a beautiful moment. But speaking of the word ugly, you were also there for an ugly moment in baseball history. Oh, yeah. You were were there 
1996, when the Orioles' second baseman, Roberto Alomar, spit into the face of umpire John Hirschbeck, you were there for the whole thing that yeah. night. What, how did that play out? And, and get, take us through what it was like to be there as a reporter. Well, it was, it was 96. The Orioles had hired Davey Johnson as their manager that year. Uh, they had spent a lot of money on free agents, including bringing Roberto Alomar in that year. And they had a very talented team that underachieved most of the year. But near the end of the season, they started to turn it on. And the last weekend of the year in Toronto, they needed to win, I think, two out of three to make the wild card. Okay. Or one, they needed to win one out of the three. Right. To, to make the wild card. Uh, so I'm, I, I go up with them to, for the Toronto that weekend. And on a Friday night game, uh, Roberto Alomar gets called out on strikes and gets into an argument with John Hirschbeck, a very heated argument with the home plate umpire. And uh, he spits in Hirschbeck's face and got thrown out of the game. And it all of a sudden it became a huge story. Okay. A big story. And it only grew bigger. After the game, after the game, we're all around Robbie's locker. And, uh, you know, he's saying that, uh, you know, Hirschbeck has been bitter ever since one of his children died of a serious illness. Uh, and he, he said that there, his other child has the same illness. Now, that's not, this is not territory he should be walking into, you know? No. And uh, what was stunning was... Uh, all these leaders like Cal and Bobby Bonilla and Eddie Murray was in that on that team then. Uh, I mean, you know, they're all uh, letting Robbie hang himself here. He, I mean, it, you know, it was a disaster. And finally, Bobby Bonilla pulled him out when he heard what was what, what he was saying, hmm. and we were done. But the damage was done. So everyone writes stories about you know what what he said about Hirschbeck's children, right? The next day, the Orioles had planned an apology ceremony where, uh, you know, Robbie was going to apologize to Hirschbeck in, in the, in the visitors, uh, dugout. They were going to have lots of media there. They were going to make it into a big deal. And Hirschbeck might have been on board with that. But when Hirschbeck got to the stadium, someone handed him a copy of the Toronto newspaper with the stories about Robbie and his comments about Hirschbeck's children. Mm -hmm. And I'm waiting in the Orioles clubhouse for this uh, apology ceremony. Me and I think Buster Oley may have been the only other reporter there who was covering the team for the Orioles then. Mm -hmm. And uh, we went down to the uh, umpire's uh, dressing room, and Hirschbeck comes tearing out of the dressing room, screaming, uh, uh, eyes crying, just face red. And he's, he's, you know, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And he's running down the hall, heads into the Orioles clubhouse. We follow him. Wow. And he lunges after Robbie Alomar. And they had to separate him. And he's screaming, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. It's just, it's just chaos, you know? So any apology now is right out the door. And this thing has escalated beyond anything anyone could imagine. And uh, it just turned into a real train wreck. The umpires threatened to boycott the uh, league championship series playoffs. Baseball had actually brought in replacement umpires 
into Camden Yards for game one of the ALCS uh, because they didn't know if the regular umpires would be out there or not. And it wasn't until about a half hour before game time that they got assurances that the umpires would be there. So it, that, that was quite an ugly thing, something I had a front row seat to that I've never seen before. Was that out of character for Alomar to say that? Obviously, you don't spit into an umpire's face, but then to escalate it the way he did, I don't know how he was dealing with the media. I don't, you know, he was he was kind of prickly. I don't think he realized the impact of what he said. Mm. I mean, I just think he was kind of oblivious to what he said. You know, he was always real sensitive about Cal Ripken's place on the team. You know, Robbie, look, Robbie Alomar may have been the greatest baseball player I've ever seen day in and day out. He could do everything and everything great. So he was a little bit sensitive about Cal's stature on the team. Hmm. And if you go back and listen to his interviews, he almost referred to him as Carl, not Cal. <laughs> and we're not sure if he did that by accident or on purpose. <laughs> and that had played out. He served a five-game suspension. And then, like, years later, didn't he and Hirschbeck actually become friendly? I think they did. I, I, I think they did on that point. What was funny was, what was interesting and ironic was the Orioles beat the Indians in that series, and Robbie Alomar hit the hit the, the big home run to decide the series. And then I'm in the locker room where his brother Sandy, who played for the Indians, comes over to the, the Orioles clubhouse to congratulate Robbie. And Robbie bursts out in tears, and they hug each other. Uh, it was quite the playoffs, that's for sure. Well, like you said, front row seat to see something like that. Well, that was an ugly, ugly fight. You've been around sanction fighting for many, many years. You started covering boxing when you made the switch to sports in 92. And you actually, as we alluded to, wrote about boxing as a young reporter, you know, hanging around with Ali up in uh, the mountains of Pennsylvania. In 2019, the Boxing Writers Association of America honored you with the Nate Fleischer Award for Lifetime Achievement in Boxing Journalism. Tom, why has boxing been so special to you as a reporter and a writer? Well, I'll give you the, what I said when I got the award that night. There was a bank robber in the early 20th century named Willie Sutton. And uh, he was very well-known, very, very prominent figure. And reporters asked him once, why do, you keep, why do you rob banks so much? And he said, because that's where the money is. Hmm. <laughs> and I, I said, I covered boxing because that's where the stories were the best stories in sports. It's no coincidence that that more than half the sports movies that are out there are about boxing. Why do you think the best stories were always in boxing? Well, because you, 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 don't, have, you don't have kids from the suburbs. You usually have the, the wave of the, the, the last wave of immigrants uh, that came through uh, the difficult system of, of adjusting to life in America usually have poor minorities who have fought their ways from the street. There's not a lot of prep boys in, in, in boxing. Uh, people who have suffered. And, you know, suffering is makes for great stories. It just does. And, uh, it, it, and, and boxers, you know, they have an air of confidence about them that they don't either they don't know or they don't care about what they say can help, can hurt them. Mm. They're not particularly interested 
and usually that kind of image. There have been once, obviously, Sugar Ray Leonard, Oscar De La Hoya, guys like that were very image conscious, you know. But most of your fighters off the street uh, would would sit there and and tell you stories and not worry about the ramifications mm -hmm. of what that story could mean once once it hit the press. So, uh, I mean, the, the most dramatic stories in sports usually come from boxing. You've covered a long list of major championship fights, many of them in Las Vegas. Have you ever thought about, like, how many, how much time have you spent in Las Vegas? I've counted up. <laughs> really? It's nine months and 20 days. <laughs> it really is. That's a rough estimate. Just covering, just covering major yeah. championship fights. I mean, really, I, I, I should have applied for resident status there. Right, right. You know, sometimes I'd be in Vegas three or four times a year. Again, that's another reason. Why did you cover boxing? I said, because, I, you know, they sent me to Las Vegas on their dime. You know? <laughs> they should have put you time. on the marquee of the hotels. Tom yeah. Lavero back in town. You know, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of time in Vegas. My first fight was uh, when Evander Holyfield defended his title against Larry Holmes. Right. And I was in June of 92 at the outdoor stadium that they would set up for fights outside of Caesars Palace. Right there in the parking lot. Yeah. Pretty wild. Wow. So tell us this. You know, for somebody who's never had the privilege of going to Las Vegas for a major championship fight, what is the atmosphere like in the days leading up to the fight and then on fight day? Well, what's interesting, you know, the atmosphere uh, is, I mean, all the high rollers from all around the country, all around the world come to town. They always have marquee performers uh, for that week for shows in Vegas. In addition to the, to the casino hotel that's hosting the event, you know, the other uh, casinos, hotels will have closed circuit TV. So it, it's a big deal for everybody. Uh, my it's 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 my fondest memory of covering boxing was being with the boxing writers. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was a real special bunch of guys. I'll never forget that that fight uh, I covered with Holmes and Holyfield. There was a, a restaurant in, in Vegas called The Flame. It's a legendary restaurant. It's not, it has been gone for a long time. Uh, but it's where all the boxers, writers, and, and sometimes mobsters would hang out. And I had heard about it for years. So uh, I, I went there one night. I didn't know anybody in boxing writing at that point. Mm -hmm. I went there one night. At the end of the bar is Ed Schuyler, Pat Putnam, and Mike Katz, okay? This is like walking into a bar if you're a rookie baseball player in New York in the 50s and seeing Willie Mays, Duke Snyder, and Mickey Mantle at the end of the bar, okay? Exactly. <laughs> and so I sit at the bar by myself, and one of them recognizes me from the press conferences, and they invite me down to sit with them, and I hang out with them. And I went, they wound up, you know, becoming lifelong friends, particularly Skyler and... Uh, I mean, I would, you know, to hang out with that crew and also like uh, the British writers, you know, the Brits who had unlimited expense accounts, they would always send their writers over to cover the big fights. And to <laughs> go out with the Brits one night uh, a week was, was always. All right. Give fight. us a favorite sports writer story from Vegas covering a fight. Well, you know, there was this, uh, I don't know if you know the Colonel, 
Bob uh, Sheridan, he announced a lot of international fights. Mm -hmm. He wasn't the voice. He wasn't Jim Lampley or Larry Merchant. But on the international uh, feed, that's who you would hear. Uh, And he was a character. And I remember drinking with him one night uh, with his crew. And we're in a mob uh, restaurant. And the colonels had a few. And uh, um, we go out uh, to get the car that we came in, one of the cars that we came in. And they have them all on this, like, board with all the keys on hooks. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the valet's not getting this car quick enough for the colonel. So he goes to he goes to the board, picks it up, and starts shaking it, and all these keys... Now, now remember the keys are connect are 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 on specific, you know, space numbers. You know, right. so they know which car is there. Right. And so the keys go flying all over the parking lot. You know, <laughs> and it turns out that I mean there were a few mobsters who apparently were a little bit upset that they couldn't find their cars later that night. So that was the kind of stuff. That, that would that would have happen in Vegas. Did the colonel ever find his car? Uh, you know what? I think we got in a cab after that. I think you probably showed up too, with the, from the way it sounds. There, but the colonel was a character. The colonel <laughs> had suffered seven heart attacks. Seven? His, what is he, over, Dick Cheney? Over his life, and for one of them, I think it was the. Uh, I forget what fight it was. It might have been the the sec- It was the second. Uh, Tyson Holyfield fight of all fights. He had been in the hospital after suffering a heart attack the week before. He checked himself out of the hospital uh, with an IV at ringside <laughs> Come to on. announce the fight. <laughs> and what a oh. fight that was. Yeah, that was the famous ear fight. That was the bite fight. I was ringside for that. So what was your view of that, Tom? Tyson chomps on Holofield's ear. What was your view? Well, I mean, I didn't know that's what happened. I mean, you know, nobody is depressed. I mean, you know, I mean, the word spread. Did he bite his ear? I mean, nobody knew for sure from where we were sitting what happened. And we we knew that they were locked up in, in, in you know, together. But uh, we didn't know that he had actually bit his ear off at that particular moment. Uh, but, uh, I mean, again, oh, wait a minute. Think about this. You're also on deadline. <laughs> well, that's the thing I wanted to explain to you. Working at the Washington times was a bit of a challenge. It wasn't the Washington post. We had limited resources and limited personnel. Uh, so, uh, my deadline situation was more dire than other papers. You know, like there, like we had one deadline and, uh, you know, that was it. And they only had like one editor in the office left to read the story. Uh, so uh, what I would do because of that, because these fights would happen late at night, uh, was I would write 12 to 13 inches that day as if one guy won. And I'd write 12 to 13 inches as if the other guy won. Right. So I could top it off with four or five paragraphs right on deadline and they could plug in and it's a story. Okay. 
I didn't write any background for someone biting another guy's ear off and being disqualified. Okay. (laughs) There was no preparation for that. (laughs) Yeah. It's got to be the only time in the history of sports writing on deadline where somebody had to ask, did he bite his ear? Yes, that was it. That was it. Look, usually we joke around on press row that the most asked question on press row is what was that punch? Because I mean, boxing, Covering boxing is fun, but covering a live boxing event is a real challenge. I mean, because these things happen pretty quickly, uh, these, these punches. And you, you, you certainly want to make sure you got the right punch. Uh, so, uh, yeah, next to what was that punch, the most memorable question was, did he actually bite his ear? <laughs> <laughs> well, the challenge of covering a live fight was there in November of 94 and you're sitting ringside. George Foreman is 45 years old and he knocks out Michael Moore to regain the heavyweight title. What the hell was that like to be ringside? Now that's the greatest single sports moment I've ever covered. Really? Oh my God. You want to talk about loud? I thought the arena, the Grand Garden Arena at the MGM was literally going to lift off the ground when Moore hit the canvas. I mean, this never happened to me before. When I started typing, my hands were shaking. It was just a remarkable moment. I remember vividly Foreman kneeling in his corner as he was declared the winner, praying while his while Angelo Dundee, who was his trainer then, and his brother Roy are like slapping him on the back. It was such a, a vivid moment for me. And uh because Foreman was was getting was getting beat, he had one around, you know, for the entire fight, and that short right hand—it was such a thing of beauty. It may have traveled six inches, but it landed right on uh, Moore's chin. And they always say in boxing, the last thing to go is power. You know, your speed goes, your reflexes go, but power can last a long time. And George had that power, and he had that savvy too. He was a much smarter fighter. The, the second time around, in addition to being one of the greatest sports figures in the history of this country. I mean, there's there, there's not many comeback stories better than George Foreman's. Right. You mentioned Dundee. Dundee was in the corner for Ali all those years, was there that night in Africa in 1974 when Ali pulled the upset of yes. Foreman to regain the championship. And now you go all these years later when George is 45 years old, and there's Angelo in the corner working for George now. And he's, you know, he's an old fat guy at this point, right? I mean, how can he win a a heavyweight championship fight? And he pulls it off with that one punch. Well, what was interesting, and and one of the stories I did before the fight, uh, I covered Riddick Bowe because he lived in Washington and when Bowe was heavyweight champion. uh, And I got to know Bowe well. And I really got to know his trainer, Eddie Futch. Eddie Futch is probably the greatest trainer in the history of boxing. Yeah, I think he trained like 18 Yeah, 18 world champions. World champions. Right, right. And uh, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time with Eddie. I've got hours of interviews I did with Eddie. I transcribed them all. Uh, and I talked to him before the Foreman fight. He was the only one who, said, who gave George a chance to win. He was the only one who said, I think George has a chance to win this fight. And what's interesting was, uh, you know, years, many years later, uh, for a couple of years, I did my own podcast called Cigars and Curveballs 
mm-hmm. where, which was basically an interview podcast of, of sports and entertainment uh, uh, figures. And I had George on the podcast and I read him what Eddie had said to me before the for, before the Moore fight. And he thought that was interesting because, you know, Eddie Futch had Ali's number. Uh, he, he, he trained Norton, who, who broke Ali's jaw, and he trained Fraser, who, you know, beat Ali in that first fight and almost won the third fight that they fought. But Foreman had Eddie Futch's number. I mean, Eddie couldn't get past Foreman. I mean, Foreman knocked out Fraser in three rounds. He knocked out Norton, you know, in two rounds in Venezuela. Uh, but George got a kick out of hearing that from Eddie Futch, hmm. that he actually picked him to win. What made Futch so great as a trainer? I mean, this is a guy who used to spar with Joe Lewis. You know, I mean, he was this brilliant walking history of boxing who never lost his cool. I mean, was was just just re- always composed in the corner. You know, you never saw a crazy corner with Eddie Futch uh, in it. And uh, he's he may have been like the wisest man I've ever. If America had had named uh, like a, a a national wise man like they do a national poet, it would have been Eddie Futch. Well, Futch was wise enough in the corner in Manila in 75 after 14th round to say to Joe Frazier, you've done enough here, son. Yes. At the end of the fight with Ali, they stopped the fight when when Frazier just would have gone back out there. Yeah. Not being able to see. But it was Eddie Futch who, who, who said no. Yeah. He cared more about him as a person than a fighter there. Here's what Eddie Futch did. Uh, when La- Larry Holmes was going to fight Michael Spinks, Michael Spinks was moving up in weight to to heavyweight to fight for the heavyweight title. Well, Eddie traded both of them, okay? Rather than picking one of them, he bowed out of the fight totally. As a mm. result, lost maybe a $250,000 payday in the process because he didn't want to pick between both fighters. Wow. That's who Eddie Futch was. Right. Well, I think that, you know, a special person like that is, you know, in a business that's so you know it's so violent oh god there's so many layers of corruption things going on behind the scenes to have a person who stands up for somebody yeah in the moment is, is so special yeah i mean most people in boxing you know get around by crawling on their bellies eddie futch always walked tall you know you mentioned earlier uh riddick bow and I wanted to ask you about one particular column before we wrap this up. And this shows you, for boxing writers, why the sport is also special. And that's the type of access that you would have to these guys. Um, you actually spent an entire day with Riddick Bowe on the day he was going to defend his title for the first time. From morning to the fight. That's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, and all it was was I got to know his, his manager, Rock Newman. Uh, a little bit, and uh, we were in New York for the fight. So I just said to Rock, I said, well, you know, can, why not let me spend the day with Bo, you know, the, the whole day? I mean, you know, there might be some parts that I can't be with him, but pretty much, you know, and Rock agreed with it. Rock Rock wanted a lot of uh, attention for Bo, uh, so he agreed to it. So uh, for the most part, I spent the day with Bo, even in his dressing room, like up until about 10 minutes before he walked out 
Into okay, put arena. us in that dressing room. We never get to experience something like that. You're in the dressing room. This is at the Garden, right? Yes, in New York. At the Garden. You're in the dressing room 10 minutes before a heavyweight championship fight. What is it like in that room? Well, Bo was Bo was such a character at the time. That was Bo uh, right after he had beaten uh, Holyfield to win the title in November. That was the best Bo ever was. And he was fighting Michael Dokes. And it was one of those things where you know, Dokes was way past it. You know, he was out of shape. This was one of those, the champion gets to have an easy fight in front of his hometown kind of fights. So Riddick mm -hmm. was very relaxed, making jokes. At one point when the referee, I'm in there when the referee comes in to give the instructions like they do, you know, people see the referee talk to fighters in the ring. Well, he got, the referee goes into each dressing room before the fight and goes over all the instructions and details. Mm -hmm. And the ref, I, I forget who it was at the time, he walked in and he's talking to Bo, and Bo puts his hand on the, on the referee's shoulder. He says, I just want to know one thing. He says, can you count to 10? <laughs> <laughs> but what was also interesting that night is that's the night that Arthur Ashe passed away. And uh, Rock oh, wow. made an announcement wow. in the dressing room that Arthur Ashe had passed away. And so that kind of put a pall over the uh, atmosphere as well. But I was there for all that. And then I wound up writing this lengthy follow-up story, you know, uh, about my, my day with Bo. And yeah, that's like, imagine being in an NFL uh, locker room, you know, before a playoff game uh, with the coach. That, that, that just doesn't happen. Why did they let you do that? Uh, you know, because there's no, there's no rules in boxing. <laughs> this is why this is why boxers are, are the way they are. There's no rules. I mean, you know, uh, Rock was a confident guy. Riddick was a confident guy. They were going to beat Michael Dokes, and not like they were fighting a rematch with Evander Holyfield. They weren't worried about that. Well, this is the kind of moment that writers used to always get that type of access, especially in boxing. And when you think about all those years covering sports. We hit on several different things. Is there one favorite boxing moment that you have as a reporter and a columnist? In 2004, at the Major League All-Star Game in Houston, I went out on a Sunday. The game's played on a Tuesday. I flew out early Sunday, and uh, I found the small little obscure church where George Foreman does Sunday services. Oh, wow. George Foreman was still, uh, I, I don't know if he still practices, but back then he was still a practicing minister. And he had a congregation that he, he did uh, a morning mass and an evening mass. And I attended the evening mass. There are about 35 people in there. And uh, all his kids took part in the services. They were up there on the altar with him. And George was a very good preacher. Uh, and it was a very nice service. And then I spent an hour with George after that, interviewing him. Uh, and we were talking about, you know, his, his fight with, with Moore and, and all the other stuff. So while that's not boxing, it's connected to boxing. The only reason I was there listening to this Houston minister was because of what happened in boxing 10 years earlier when he fought Michael Moore 
So, I mean, and, and you know, I've, I've talked to George over the years. When Tom Brady won the Super Bowl a couple years ago, I, I, I called George up and talked to him about, you know, accomplishing that and what it means when you're that age to do something like that. So, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, and it all goes back to that, that knockout uh, of Foreman over Moore. It, it, it was an electric moment, uh, the best I've ever experienced. Your hands were shaking as you were trying to type. Yes. Yeah. Did you write a good one that night, Tom? It was okay. <laughs> it was okay. I mean, well, I'm sure it was better one. than okay. It was hard to write a bad one. Look, I, when yeah. I look back on it, I hate the fact that I used the words Father Time. I can't believe I did that, but I did. Well, you know, Father Time was ticking on you with deadline <laughs> and your hands were shaking. So, hey, it's quite all right. Well, I got to say, uh, the stories are, that you've shared with us have been fantastic. The the access that you had going to uh, front row seats at ringside and to Ali's camp as a young reporter and and George Foreman preaching and uh, there tonight of Alomar with an ugly night in baseball and, and a beautiful night in baseball with Ripken and on and on. This has been such a treasure trove of great stories. I really appreciate your time, Tom. It's so cool to reconnect with you. Well, let me tell you, some of my favorite memories are drinking with you guys in Sydney. (laughs) Okay? I wasn't there. That was not me, Tom. Yeah. (laughs) I think we did have a few Victoria bitters. Yes, we did. Me, me. Yes, we did. Well, thanks a lot, Tom. It's been great to share this time with you, and I wish you all the best. Thanks for having me, Todd. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on!